On the Empire Podcast this week, we don our masks and saddle up as a lone ranger rides into town pursued by a posse of angry critics. Will we join said posse? Find out soon. Ish. Plus the brilliant Armando Iannucci, co-creator of The Thick of It, Feep, and one Alan Gordon Partridge pops in for a chat, as does the biggest head in show business, Anthony Stewart Head. All that, plus the usual news and nonsense on the only movie podcast that has been told to train apart from the other movie podcasts after the board reneged their gentleman's agreement to let us move to entertainment. What a shame. Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt, welcome to the Empire Podcast as ever. I'm joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up is a man I was going to insult by saying he's Peter principled his way to the middle, but then I remembered that right now he is not one, not two, but three actual swords right by his desk. Welcome, James Dyer. That's actually true. That is true. That's terrifyingly true. Mm. Uh, take us through your swords. Uh, I have a, uh, a wakizashi, uh-huh. which is a, a sort of a, a short samurai sword. Uh-huh. Uh, I've got uh, a Roman gladius, which was uh, a prop from Spartacus Blood and Sand. Uh, and I have a full-length uh, Crusaders Claymore from a straight-to-video film of no particular note. So if anyone attacks the Empire of us, you're basically the guy to defend us. Yeah, pretty much. Isn't it because you get incredibly big letters? <laughs> <laughs> it took me a good couple of seconds to work that one out. It's early in the morning in my defence. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I get extraordinarily large jiffy bags, and that's what I use them for. Fantastic. Uh, the the uh, the voice you just heard there was the uh, was from the ebullient bundle of bouncing energy who edits this podcast while rocking the best hair of anybody on any podcast in the world, apart from perhaps Total Hair Podcast. It's Ali Plum. Yeah, come at me, Chris Hardwick. It's better than yours. Chris Hardwick has not good hair. I, oh. I don't care. I don't care. What a bitch. I don't care. He has not good hair. And that lady whose smooth voice you've just heard, that's the voice that's made her quite a hit some of the gentlemen who listen to this podcast according to our comments on Twitter anyway so uh, I'm sure Helen O'Hara has no qualms about me telling you her phone number and it is uh, Chris uh, no no sorry Chris uh, no thank you right, it, it starts with 07 it, it starts at 07 right I can't confirm or deny that okay so just guess and let mathematics do your work okay time for your questions now you've been sending them in all week and we've been sifting through them and have chosen only the not worst at Anya McCohen who asks what actor slash actress has the most irritating voice to listen to would have put you off seeing a great film if they were in it I think that's a difficult one because if they are actors or actresses chances are they've got a voice that's worth <laughs> listening to to some extent I think the people who sneak under the radar who, who limbo their way into movies despite having slightly unusual voices are often comedians and for me as much as I, I, I like his comedy he does make me laugh Chris Tucker on occasion can twiddle my nipples he almost single-handedly ruined the, uh, the fifth element didn't he with Ruby Rod I think it oh, survived him I love so it. do I I it thought he was actually it. quite good in that he fit the tone of the film quite well so yeah he worked for me yeah didn't like his haircut was better than Ali's, it but, is, you know. Yeah, it's fair. But yeah, I, I actually learnt to love him because I watched the film so many times mm. that you kind of just get over it. Uh, I'd also say Ricky Gervais is the comedian who uh, sneaks into movies and whose laugh in particular drives me to murder, uh, only once or twice. But he has a laugh and a voice that generally kills me. It's probably a good thing Joe Pasquale hasn't made a movie yet. Indeed, indeed it is. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good God. Rosie Perez. But that's like kind of an obvious one. It is an obvious one. This very screeching, mm. grating voice. But, but unusual, I, unusual voices. When when Scarlett Johansson did um, Ghost World, lots yeah. were made of her voice being unusually deep for a girl. No one seems to mention that anymore. Yeah. Uh, but that was a thing at the time. Uh, going at the other end of the scale, Joey Lauren Adams has uh, quite a sort of helium esque voice. Yeah, uh, which is unusual. Jennifer Tilly as well. Yeah, I mean mm-hmm. it doesn't annoy me. It's just it's just you know it's it's notable. Charlie Day. 
because he has this tendency to go very high-pitched, almost like Joe Pasquale, but somehow even more strident. He does, Joe Pasquale doesn't get angry. If anyone who knows doesn't know who Joe Pasquale is, count yourself lucky. Uh, but if uh, if you do, well, there you go. Um, but yeah, Charlie Day he, and Pacific Rim, he just gets very loud and screechy. And I actually at one point thought that his voice would be a weapon against the, the kaiju, but no, it isn't. Uh, so I'm not a huge fan of his voice. Although I do like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Swings and roundabouts. Sorry, actors and actresses who we... Um, Put in that pigeonhole. Okay, so at Turner Barway asks, after Alan Partridge, what other TV shows slash characters would you like to see on the big screen? Do, do we want to keep this British, or do we want to throw it open? I think James will want to throw it open because he no, doesn't watch no, any British. No, no, no. I, okay. do, I, do, I, oh, I take I apologise. I apologise. What do you watch? I almost never watch any British TV. <laughs> um, see, I would have said back in the day I would like to see a proper Blackadder movie, but given that any time they've broken out the series format, it's been uniformly dreadful. Not true. No, I'm sorry. Blackadder special. No, no. The, well, the Christmas special is good because Robbie Coltrane is good in it. But, yeah, you're right. But he's the good thing about that. Blackadder, you know, was it back and forth? You know, the one from the Millennium Dome one? That was... That was terrible the cavalier years that didn't really work either um so i'm not sure i'd now want to see a blackadder film i i hoped or i thought at one point that given chris o'dowd and richard iowadi's increased profiles that graham linehan might have wrapped up the it crowd with a movie uh, which would have been interesting to see uh but he hasn't he's going to wrap it up with a with a one-off special on channel four which hopefully should be out this year, if not next year. Uh, and they just filmed that. So, yeah, but I was hoping maybe I could see that kind of kind of transferring to the big screen, maybe. Hmm. It would have been fun. Is there a reason why we're ignoring the British Empire? No, it's we just... It, it's, we're too close to it, man. You mm. know? It, we care too much. I want to see what happens. Yeah, that needs to be wrapped up big time. Uh, no, it's funny because the movies I want to see most on this topic would be... Wallace and Gromit, and they've obviously had a couple of movies already, but I want them to keep making as many as possible. Amen. Because a big part of my childhood, and uh, we were doing a piece piece on the website about train fights, fights on trains, and we couldn't not put in the wrong trousers because there is nothing better. I mean, it's it's a penguin with a rubber glove on its head laying tracks for a runaway toy train as it goes along. While pretending to be a chicken. It's just amazing. Lest we forget, we should also... Uh, I would also quite like to see a return of, of uh, Lenny Henry's Delbert Wilkins on the big screen. <laughs> I think it's been far too long since uh, since Delbert graced our screens. We've only really talked comedy, but, um, I mean, surely the most obvious one, if you were if you were to ad- adapt a British TV show right now for the big screen and you wanted to make some money, surely Downton Abbey would be the one to go for. Great show. Oh, I thought you were going to say something else. Sherlock would be a good one too. Sherlock. Sherlock, I think, would work slightly better. I'm not saying I personally would be first in line for Downton Abbey the movie. However, I think there would be a line. Yeah. Oh, I love Downton Abbey, uh, so I would be in that line. Uh, but I think Downton Abbey works well as a slightly soapy period piece. Do you know mm. what I mean? I don't think it. I don't think it has what I would call the sufficiently tight narrative to work as a movie. Unlike the British Empire. Unlike the British Empire and indeed Double Wilkins. Listen, I want to know what happened to Carol's baby uh, that she kept in that drawer. Is he now a full-grown man in that drawer? <laughs> is there, or, or is there a skeleton of a baby, which is much darker? The other ones, I thought you were going to mention Helen. I thought you were going to mention Sherlock. I thought you were going to say Doctor Who. There was talk of a Breaking Bad movie, which would be interesting, although I think the show is going to wrap up pretty definitively. Dwayne Dibley spin-off? No. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking Luther would be... For me, they are they are movies to me when well, I watch that's them. That's the plan, isn't it? That they've wrapped up the series now, and the thought was Neil Cross was going to do a, a Luther movie uh, afterwards. And I believe Idris Elba has mentioned it as well. The problem is, is that Idris Elba is in basically every film being made at the moment, uh, as well as probably winning an Oscar 
for being Nelson Mandela. So the question is, are they going to be able to get him for a Luther movie? Because uh, I, I was really surprised they managed to get him back for a third series, to be honest. I think he just loves the character and likes Neil Cross. But um, we will see. I would love to see it. Really love to see it. Light season three, but it, I need more. That didn't feel like a conclusion to me. I need more. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I think uh, I think he's very close to the character, isn't he? He's a producer on the show, yeah. so I think that they could definitely get him back. And uh, I think he's just a fascinating character. I love that sequence where he went and listened in this series where he, he walked into the uh, the office of the Internal Affairs guys investigating them, and it was just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, he's he so much godly. better. He's so much better than that than he than he was in Pacific Rim, sadly. But mm. um, yeah, love to see that. That'd be that'd be brilliant. But yes, British Empire. Let's throw a weight behind it. Let's make it happen. <laughs> Either that or Danger Mouse. Let's do it. Uh, okay, moving on. So, next one is from at Katie Trainer, who asks, what's the best voice performance? Oh, this is a good one. What's the best voice performance by an actor slash actress in an animated film? Also, is it possible to win an Oscar for being a voice? I have to say, I think that probably the best one by a name actor or actress is still uh, Robin Williams in Aladdin because that kind of changed what you could do with a voice performance. I think that's a, a very solid choice. I would possibly go with Betty Lou Gerson for Cruella de Vil if I had to pick one because oh, yeah, she still great. scares the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, also Jeremy Irons in uh, in The Lion King I thought yes. was very good as Scar. I think there's been a, a really lovely trend over the last few years of, of animators on movies actually winding up as voices in the finished film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it happens quite a bit so they put down the, the temp voice and then they can't find anyone better to do it or maybe they just think we can do it anyway so like Tom McGrath of uh, Madagascar who voices the uh, the lead penguin skipper he's just fantastic and that's that's become like now a, a thing for him almost like his main job in a way <laughs> Brad Bird's Edna Mode as well great, yes. great voice yes he is and um, Bob Peterson yeah, who's the voice of Doug in, right. in Up based on his actual dog not his actual dog's <laughs> voice obviously but his actual dog's imagined voice so I really love that um, it's difficult for me to look beyond because uh, Jungle Book's my favourite Disney movie uh Phil Harris is, as Baloo the mm. bear just so warm and, and lovable um, and I, I love the fact that Pixar go down a different route mostly uh, from other animation studios and, and cast uh, the voice not the star Yeah, and I like that having said that Tom Hanks is great as Woody I'm surprised that James didn't bring up everyone's favourite flying talking donkey I knew, yeah, I, th- I thought someone would mention this. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I think Eddie Murphy's fantastic in Shrek, but actually, I think he's very good in Mulan as well mm. uh, as the little dragon. Um, yeah, he's fantastic in everything. Also, while we're going back to Aladdin, Apu. He doesn't really talk. You just it, like him because he's a monkey. I do like him because he's a monkey. Yes, okay, that's true. <laughs> a monkey and a fez. Let's not forget. Fair enough. I mean, listen. I think I think generally good animated films work because they have great voice actors, um, but they also work because they've matched those actors brilliantly to the characters. Um, and I think that's what the very best ones do. James Earl Jones. Mufasa. Mufasa. I was going to say the voice of CNN, but yes. Fair enough. Mufasa. Yeah, that's that's not a bad one. Angela Lansbury. <laughs> As a teapot. Or the great and the great late Jerry Orbach be our guest. Um, there's also uh, Eleanor Audley from Maleficent in the original Sleeping Beauty, who is absolutely brilliant. Another one, there's a very long tradition, especially in Disney, of recruiting Broadway actors and actresses um, as voices, which goes, you know, right up to like Tangled very recently. Um, and she is, for me, the best. But then I just love Maleficent. I think she's a fantastic character. <laughs> Don't you have a lot of Maleficent merchandise? I do have Maleficent stuff, yeah. I have mugs and a t-shirt and everything. She's just great. She's a very stylish villain. So I'm cheating now. I'm looking through the... Uh Box Office Mojo's uh, top animated films of all time, <laughs> uh, just for some inspiration. And I, I've happened upon Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which obviously has <laughs> all the animated characters in it, uh, including you know, obviously so many voiced by the, the 
brilliant Mel Blanc. Uh, but I would actually say that, that Roger Rabbit himself is possibly the weak point of that film. Wouldn't you agree? Where's I, Ollie Richards when you need him? I wouldn't. I like Roger Rabbit. I think the the voice standout there is obviously uh, Kathleen Turner as Jessica Rabbit. Schwing. I'm not bad, Mr. Valiant. I'm just drawn that way. Oh, amazing. Agreed. Agreed. I'm going to throw one more in there uh, because we mentioned them already. Wallace and Gromit, the great Peter Salas. That's a good way to end that one. Uh, let's move on to the last question this week, which is from at Ben J Rigby One, who asks: uh, Toronto and Venice festivals are on the way. What in the program, with or without distribution, is most interesting for you guys? Oh gosh, so many good films coming up this year. Uh, Gravity is probably the film I'm most excited about in the second half of this mm-hmm. year. Well, that and Thor, obviously. Um, it's the only film to have appeared at Comic Con and opened the Venice Film Festival in the same year. <laughs> it's an impressive double bill, definitely. Um, but yeah, there's, it's it's going to be a, a big, huge uh, year. I think we've also got Twelve Years a Slave is coming up, yeah. um, which is a really, really intriguing prospect and an incredible cast there's Horns and Kill Your Darling so that's a Daniel Radcliffe double bill at Toronto blimey yeah who would have thought you know he's done well for himself um there's oh there's just so many this year I'm trying to think of something I've never been to the Toronto Film Festival I'd love to go I don't think I'm going to go this year but uh, I'd love to go uh, not least for their Midnight Madness program which is uh, basically just every every night at midnight they just show the most debauched new horror films and Eli Roth's uh, The Green Inferno is going to be uh, premiering in there as well along with a whole bunch of other stuff I'd love to uh, slap my peepers on um, so yeah God, I'd love to go to both of those although apparently the, the Wi-Fi in Venice this is a hot scoop is not that great what? There you go. I know. You I mean know. this ancient city of canals is not yeah. built for effective Wi-Fi? It'd just be me and Jeff Wells wandering around with that Wi-Fi uh, in deep mood pockets. All right. So that's there's loads of great stuff, and there's loads of great stuff also at the uh, London Film Festival. Captain Phillips is, of course, opening that, and that uh, is in, in October. Thanks, guys. If you want to get your questions uh, read out on the podcast, uh, send them in via the usual methods. Twitter is obviously the best way. We're at Empire Magazine there. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. There's also our Facebook page where we're Empire Magazine. Do log on and like us, why don't you? And then send emails, if that's your thing, podcast at empireonline.com. Okay, before we tackle this week's movie news, time for a rest and a bit of chat. Anthony Stewart Head was known to millions in this country as that bloke from the Gold Blend Coffee adverts. Then he was known to millions on the other side of the pond, and here as well, as Charles from Buffy. Then he was known to millions as Uther Pendragon from Merlin, and now he's going to be known to more millions, even more millions, as Chiron from Percy Jackson's Sea of Monsters as he's replaced Piers Brosnan in the role. He came in earlier this week to speak to Helen and Phil DeSimlin. All right, well, welcome to a special edition of the Empire Podcast, and we're joined by Anthony Head. Welcome. Thank you very much. Um, Welcome to you, too. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to my world. (laughs) Well, it's a whole new world this time, isn't it? You're in Percy Mm. Jackson's Sea of Monsters, and you are a centaur mentor. I am a centaur mentor, Mm. or a mental centaur. Right. Which comes first? I'm not sure. (laughs) I guess I was a centaur first before I became a mentor. True. And so uh, tell me about the process of becoming a centaur, because I know you put a lot of work into it. You were uh, studying horses' gates and all sorts. Well, a little. I mean, it's for me, it's, work, you know, the, the whole thing about, about acting is it's, it's the work you put in beforehand that sort of informs you and makes, A, the process enjoyable. If you just turn up on set and sort of speak the lines, it's just like, mm, okay, well, I can't really <laughs> do that. Um, but also, it's, you know, it's fun finding out how to make yourself believable as a as a as a centaur not necessarily as a horse that's different but um because i did wonder about where do you stop you know with the and all that <laughs> <laughs> and what did i eat for breakfast was it oats uh was it chaff or was it um you know full english i uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> or a combination thereof. And a combination. And actually, since since the horse's gut is actually not the best designed thing in the world, if yeah, when they get colic, if it stops actually working, it sort of atrophies very quickly and they die. Um, to get maudlin. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, that was depressing. But, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, but you know, it was, it was fun trying to. You know, we we have some. We have horses. So I was able to sort of go out and and, and watch them for a while. Mm. And I and I work with with a, a dear old friend of ours, Pete Elliott, who's has advised on many films about you know creatures and things. He was happy to sort of spend a day in his back garden. And we, were, I was, I bought myself some stilts unbeknownst to the film company because they'd I'd asked if they could get me someone they said no no you're not insured so I thought oh, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, but I I worked out with the stilts because I'd wanted to be I wanted to be good at it and not sort of tottering about and sort of trying to get to grips with that that part of it had to be sort of um, sorted by the time I got on set kind of just things like I'd, I'd, I worked out that if if uh, you lean forward I'd watched other centaurs as you do uh, when you're researching. And you kind of got, right the way across the board, you got the idea of them just being very upright. And therefore, it's difficult to sort of take your mind away from a man on stilts, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you leant forward, and I had a rope around my waist, and I was held by a a very able stuntman, very sweet man, that followed me around all over the place, that he, I was able to lean right forward of the, uh, on the stilt, so changing the centre of gravity, so that it looked indeed like I was sort of stemming from the horse's neck. Okay, as it were. Were you an angsty teenager? No, I wouldn't say I was angsty at all. I would say that that I had, I identified with Cat Stevens' father and son. Um, <laughs> I got that um, full on. My dad was fairly old school, but um, but. I don't think, no, we lived out sort of, we lived in Hampton, Middlesex. There wasn't an awful lot of angst in Hampton, <laughs> really. <laughs> Just on the occasional weekend, bank holidays. <laughs> <laughs> no, I went to a mixed school, so that was, you know, apart from, you know, the obvious sort of why haven't I got a girlfriend and other people. But I generally, I did all right there, it was okay. Um, and it was... It's just interesting because you've, you know, with with the in betweeners as well. You're mm. kind of throughout. You, you're you're in those kind of just on the outside of a lot of those dynamics. Mm. In, in in, and I just wondered if we had, obviously we mentioned we having having Logan Lerman in. He mm. seems so together. Like he's so young. Yeah. he's been acting for a long time. Different from you because you obviously went to drama school and went on from there. But he's had it all quite quickly and yes, he seems has. very. Very they level-headed. All, all of them, I mean, the, the 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 kids in the film, they were all very, very together, very sort of, um, and they, you know, they hung out and had a good time, and they were sort of, they weren't. I never felt like they were angsty, or you know, they didn't, they didn't feel stressed, or, or you know, yeah. Um, but like, if it was me, I would imagine, you know, you you'd rap there and you go and drink lots of cider at the local whatever bar would serve you. But I imagine Logan wasn't quite like that. No, he wasn't. <laughs> But I think we were talking about this earlier, actually. I mean, the only thing I think, I mean, I, I work with, you know, Sarah, I've worked with Sarah, various people who sort of, who started very early. Sarah Michelle Geller started when she was six. And the only thing I, I did feel at one point that somewhere along the line, she might have missed out on her childhood, you know, because they're forced to be adult and make adult decisions really early. And that's great in as much as they can, and they do it very well. But at the same time, 
some things, you know, some, that sort of just that craziness and wildness of just going, you know. Going to ask actually about um, In Betweeners, which obviously, mm. you know, um, your daughter's in as well. I mean, the sequel was announced last week. Have you heard anything yet? Are they calling you back? Are you going to be back for it? No, I haven't heard anything, <laughs> no. Um, in fact, I was I was at a gig last night that Idris Elba, um, I worked with Idris Elba a while back, he said, he said, "Did you?" Because he want he he says he'll do anything. He'll do a walk on in it. So I've got I've got to email him and say, "Idris Elba really wants to be." <laughs> He's so cool. He's like the opposite of the in betweeners. But I mean, then it would work. Oh, it would be great. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know what the storyline is. I don't know what 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 they're doing. Right, but you're up for returning if if called upon. Yeah, <laughs> Will's dad is great. <laughs> Will, I love Will's dad. Will's dad He's, is an idiot. He's great though. He's hilarious. <laughs> He's like the opposite of Jim's dad in American Pie. He just he doesn't care at all. At all. Just doesn't care. He must no. be a lot of fun to play. Yes, but that's what you know. I, I I love acting. You know, one minute I get to be a you know a horse's bottom, and uh, and then and another I'm being. That's the nature of the game. Luckily, I mean, sometimes you can wait for a long time for a gig. I've been so fortunate that I just you know I have had lots of great experiences. You know, like playing Jeffrey Howe along Merrill's, alongside Meryl Street, you know, stuff that, you know, you, fairy tales are made of. We were going to ask, actually, because um, obviously you've taken over from Piers Brosnan in Percy Jackson. Mm. Are there any other Brosnan roles you'd take? I mean, <coughs> given that you've just met, I mean, you've worked with Meryl Streep already. If they make Mamma Mia 2, I'll be honest, your singing voice is, you know, probably quite a bit superior to this. <laughs> <laughs> With the greatest um, of respect, Piers Brosnan, the of course. of respect. Um, um, I, of course, I'd, I'd grab it. Um, I'd Love to work with Meryl again. She's the most wonderful, wonderful person. She's funny and witty and and easy and just and remarkable. You know, I mean, she just. I was wondering whether she was one of those method actresses who sort of, you know, who would come out of the trailer mm. in guise. Mm. That would be terrifying. Did, well, yeah, it would be, but you know, you'd work with it. But she just no, she was easy. She was sort of like she was. She had a greatest laugh, um, and uh, she'd sort of sit down next to you and be joking and laughing with the rest of them and then the camera would, would turn over and she was in it, mm. absolutely in it, to the point where the, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck are going up. And that was one of the things, because Stanley Tucci has worked with her a lot and is good, good friends with her and so working with Stanley on, on, on Percy Jackson was great fun and we talked about Meryl a little, <laughs> as you do. But also Stanley's he's a, he's a huge aficionado, he loves food and uh, so we went out to a couple of restaurants in Vancouver and he he showed me the ropes. It's very cool. But he's, uh, he's, again, he's very funny in the film. Yeah. Oh, he's great. Did, I've got to ask, like, going to a restaurant with Stanley Tucci, do, do, you know, do the chefs come out and sort of talk to him about Big Night? Do, does he have chef fanboys? Not that I noticed. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, because we went to kind of, you know, we were going to sort of, um, we went to a couple of sushi restaurants and a couple of, you know, it was, it was sort of low key stuff mm. you know, stuff that people would tell him about right yes and we'd sort of we'd just find our way there under the radar good stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> did you get any feedback from Jeffrey Howe I heard that he thought it was alright um, I met him I met him um, I, again you know in doing some research uh, I I asked our as a friend of us who used to be our Labour, Labour MP who lost his seat um, and I said, "Is there any way that I can get into the Commons?" And also, I'd like to meet Geoffrey Howe. And his partner very sweetly set it up. And 
it was a fascinating meeting. And the the gem that I took away from it, there were all sorts of, because my partner helped me sort of draw up a list of questions because I'd read his book. And so I couldn't ask him sort of, you know, where did you go to school? And where did you, yeah. So she suggested a few interesting questions like, what animal would you like to be? If you were a car, what would you think you'd be? And to those questions, uh, one was he pointed to his tie, which was uh, a lot of pink elephants. And, he said, <laughs> and, uh, and also he pointed out that he was Thai man of the year in 80-something. Um, and the car was a Toyota Prius, Did you say? <laughs> which is a remarkably wow. practical car. Very sensible. Um, but one thing that I, I, I remember seeing, because um, I watched a lot of footage, and uh, I watched him in sort of large groups of sort of very foreign dignitaries, he'd always do this thing of patting his pockets and then he then it would sort of go up to the flaps over the pockets and then it would sort of pull down the jacket and then go his hands would go around the back. And I thought it was either some strange little ritual that he'd, some good luck thing, or he put his hands in his pockets and somebody who was grooming him said, you mustn't do that. So I asked him and he said he used to smoke. Yeah. And uh, at sort of extreme moments, he'd pat his pockets to make sure he got his fags. And then, when he didn't carry cigarettes, it would be a signal to his aide who did carry cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> this, of course, was in the days when people smoked more freely and you could smoke um, on the job, as it were. But uh, that was, for me, it was a gem because it sort of it means that you've got some behavior that is, is completely connected to sort mm. of being human, which is what it's about. It's finding something, something that you, that we can buy into, that we sort mm. of, we get into the human, humanness of your character, mm. which again is why, you know, when you do sort of a bit of research for something like, like being a horse's bottom, that we buy it. Yeah. That we're not going, oh, it's an actor with a thing stuck on his, on his behind. Yeah. And that the, the, the squirrel pants are seamless. <laughs> there are two things I'm desperate to ask you about that kind of surfaced in our research. One, I did not realise that, mm-hmm. that your gold blend, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> your gold blend ad went to America. Yeah, you both went to America and did Taster's Choice commercials. We didn't go to America. We shot them here. Okay, um, but we did. The only time that we ever ever went off piste was an ill-advised uh, ad exec decided that we should go to Paris to shoot this romantic weekend in spring. And it was the coldest day in memory, and it was foggy, and they couldn't shoot any of the, the landmark stuff that they wanted to. And they spent a fortune on post making our noses the right colour because we were blue with cold. And we, our noses were red and our lips were blue. And I remember having to suck ice cubes to stop the, the you know, seeing our breath. Very romantic, but there you go. Wow. I wanted to ask a little bit about Buffy. I mean, that is still, you know, most people's favourite thing ever, mine included. And um, me too. Yeah. Do, do you have, I mean, I remember seeing you on a on a poll a few years ago of the great, greatest musicals of all time and Buffy had come in really high, mm. like 13 or something, and you sounded simultaneously proud and slightly horrified um, that, it, that it was quite so, you know, um, or I maybe was, amazed is the right word rather than horrified. I was... It, <laughs> I think, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a great musical. Mm. I mean, I really do. I think when it was held sort of in the lofty heights that it was, you sort of go, wow, mm. that's something else. But um, no, I was immensely proud of it because I just, I thought Joss did such an extraordinary job with it. When he sent through the original 
CD with him banging out the songs on on the piano and 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 Kai, his wife, singing the girls' bits. And it was, you know, my God, this is a musical. This is actually music and witty lyrics, and it all fits. And what I didn't realize at the time was it, it broke something like four major storylines mm. in song, huge bits like me leaving, like um, Willow, Willow and Tara, yeah. and Tara, you know, and 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 the fact that Buffy was in heaven, not in hell. Yeah, and it was woof. Oh, strong stuff. Strong stuff indeed, yeah. We're getting the sign to wind up, I'm afraid. Um, Someone actually literally bouncing up and down outside yeah, the door. Yeah, I'm afraid, yeah. <laughs> well, um, thank you very much for coming in. Thank uh, you. Percy Jackson is out uh, this week. Seventh. Thank you very much. Go see it. Lovely guy, is he? Absolutely wonderful. I want him to be my mentor. Okay, moving news time. Uh, it's been a big week of news, actually. So, uh, what have you got? Well, the thing I think we were all talking about at the beginning of this week was obviously the casting of the new Doctor Who. Helen, you are our resident Whovian. Mm. What's your take on it? I think if you're going to go with uh, a white male, uh, he's probably the best one you could have gone with. I think people were very excited this time with the prospect of it maybe not being white or not being male, or hey, maybe both. But, um, but you know, they've, they've kept it fairly traditional. At the same time, they have you know, shaken things up for the past two Doctors. We've had the kind of young, sexy Doctors for the past two incarnations, and now we're getting a little bit more kind of professorial, kind of possibly avuncular uh, than before. So that's kind of interesting. We haven't mentioned this person's name. Oh, it yeah. is, of course, Peter Capaldi. And, uh, yes, there were endless jokes flying on Sunday and Monday about, you know, swearing in the TARDIS, given that he is, of course, best known and best loved, I think, from Malcolm Tucker. But the truth is he can turn his hand to anything. He's been a fan of Doctor Who since he was in, you know, short short trousers. And um, and I think he'll be great in the role. And it will be a shake-up. It'll be a different kind of dynamic with the companion. They'll probably come in with a different companion or companions, I think, in the near future because, you know, middle-aged man travelling around with a young, nubile girl looks a bit odd so I think we'll either get an extra person in or they might shake up the companion sort of profile a little bit so that'll be interesting it's it's, it's an odd one isn't it because I think Chris and I were talking about we are not by any stretch of anyone's imagination fans of Doctor Who mm. um, and yet this bit of casting makes me think that I might give the show another chance Yeah, mm. and if so, we're yeah. thinking that then maybe a lot of other people are too. Yeah, yeah I think that's true. I, I, there have been worries expressed, and I don't think that they're particularly well-founded, that this will damage the show's profile among what has become its fan base, which is quite young. Mm. Um, and there is a massive young fan base. I mean, Chris, we saw it at Comic-Con where there were huge numbers of young, cool Americans dressed in Doctor Well, I say cool. But they were dressed as Doctor Who characters of one kind or another. Absolutely. It was it was probably the single most popular costume inspiration of the of the entire thing. Um and, you know, uh, there is a there is a worry that if you have an older doctor you lose some of that kind of trendy status. I'm not sure it's well founded and I think Capaldi's good enough to to hold the people in. He's cool and he's quirky and I think people will love him. Um, and I think he's going to, he's a brilliant actor and he'll bring so much history to the role as well. And I'm, I, I love the fact that they've gone away from the, the younger doctors. Uh, I was getting very, very sick and tired of that. And I think he's, he's the best choice. And yeah, I know you're talking about, you know, would they have cast a non-white male mm. in the role? But I think at the end of the day, you cast the best actor and they have. Uh, I even watched the live show, the live announcement, uh, with lots of razzmatazz around 
uh, his uh, his appointment. Um, he was shrouded in secrecy. It was, it was called Project Houdini, and uh, apparently only ten people at the BBC, one of whom uh, I'm guessing was Peter Capaldi, <laughs> knew that he'd been cast uh, as the Doctor. Uh, and so you know, it's it, it was that's the level of interest that this is sparking in people who are non Doctor Who fans. I am going to give the show another chance. I think he's a fantastic actor, and I think he can really bring some vitality to it. Um, having said that, I will echo what someone else said on Twitter this week. Let's hope that the uh, they also increase the special effects budget to more than two pounds fifty and a packet of peanuts because right? that—that's the big thing. It's just I, my problem with Doctor Who is you're trying to do a sci-fi show with a budget that doesn't become a sci-fi show. A fair comment, I think. I think it, the the effects have gotten a lot better in recent years, and you should give it a. That's bit, very bit comparative. Of a yes, I, I, I saw the Christmas special with Kylie Minogue and the the, the weird Halo metal alien uh, angel things. That was, yeah. Special. Yeah, there's there's still sub Babylon Five. A little bit. <laughs> oh, a little come bit. on! And Babylon Let's Five not... special effects were done on an Amiga. Let's not so. slag off Babylon Five, all right? I'm not slagging off Babylon Five. I'm not slagging off Babylon Five. Helen O'Hara, Oxford University president of Babsock. I was not president. Treasurer. No, nothing. Sergeant at Arms. <laughs> Neither that. Sorry, what? How do you not know that Helen was a member of Babsock at Oxford? Well, she joined the Babylon 5 Society at university. Only this, is it. this is a fact. I only joined so I could see the programmes. It was the end of season three, beginning of season four. Everyone knows that was the most exciting time to watch Babylon 5. And I couldn't see it because we didn't have a TV in the, you know, And in what's rooms. a prosthetic Minbari headdress between friends? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have to dress up, and I certainly didn't. London Mulani. <laughs> <laughs> is anyone still listening? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Let's move. Ali, on. this is probably your, your point to, to come in with. Babylon Five is a big pile of shit. Uh, Babylon Five is a big pile of shit. Get I out. have a bunch of stories that are all about sequels, and I'm sorry about that, but they are of import. So pin back your earls and listen to this a lot. Go for it. James Cameron confirms Avatar Four. Boom. There will be three Avatar sequels starting in 2016. On a yearly basis. I'm going to jump in very quickly and say, as the person who was on set of Avatar and was a huge Avatar advocate, very excited about it, um, is it not a bit presumptuous to greenlight three sequels to, okay, a film which was the biggest film of all time, I appreciate that, but... James Cameron's films, certainly a couple of them, certainly Titanic as well, have suffered from the same problem, which is a kind of retrospective adjustment of people's reaction to it, where everyone loves it, and then as the months go by, they become cooler, and then they're in a state where, oh yeah, we never really liked that. And you can't help feeling that the excitement for Avatar sequels doesn't do justice to the box office of the first film. But here's the thing. There's no no excitement uh, that I'm getting anyway uh, for Avatar sequels in our circle. In film geek circles, there's there's a lot of cynicism about this, but Avatar wasn't the biggest film of all time because of people like us. That's Avatar very true. was the biggest film of all time because of people who, who didn't go to the cinema very often, who fell in love with the world, who fell in love with Pandora and the Navi and that big tree and everything, <laughs> you know. And uh, so they are still infatuated with this film. I think it's also, I believe, the biggest selling Blu-ray of all time, which mm. tells the tale. Yeah. And I think that there is a lot of excitement out there outside us cynical bastards. So that I would say that. And listen, three James Cameron movies on the way. Never a bad thing. Never a bad thing. But is is, is was it lightning in a bottle? Was it that it uh, pioneered this new 3D revolution, which has now become 3D fatigue? You know, is the second one? I mean, let's let's look at it another way. If he's going to film all three of them back to back, then even if the second one doesn't, you know do brilliantly they've still got another dude to go because that's that's the idea isn't it? he's going to do a Peter Jackson and shoot all three yes but filming these films costs practically nothing it's only making them into something you can release that costs mm. something so if they did write off the last two 
they wouldn't be writing off a vast sum of money. They should just release it with Sam Worthington running around with cameras on his forehead and wearing a leotard with polka dots. That would be... I'd pay to see that. That'd be brilliant. So is Aldana just with, with cameras on her? That'd be, that'd be fantastic. This or, is uh, giving us a, a real insight into your all, psyche right now. Go all Dogville and just have it all as a kind of setup yeah, where you absolutely. fill in the blanks. I don't mean in a sexual way. I just mean you know, it, would be, it would be fun to, to watch uh, Toys Aldana in a skin-tight leotard with... Pink pump. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Uh, I've got another news story, which is uh, Christopher <laughs> Macquarie. Oh, I forgot you were still here. Sorry. <laughs> What's in a reverie? He's on for Mission Impossible 5. Now, he has been dancing around this for a while. Uh, he tweeted a good few months ago, kind of hinting at it, and then people reported it as fact. And then he went, oh, no, 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 no. Of course I'm, I'm not working with my regular collaborator, Tom Cruise. No. And though there is a spot open for Mission Impossible 5, which would suit me very well. I mean, no, of course not. A few months later, here he is. Yes, he tweeted the words, Mission accepted. Not in that voice, necessarily. And uh, so it has come to be. He will be directing the fifth instalment of the Mission Impossible franchise. When Mission Impossible first arrived, when you first saw it, and you saw a helicopter smash into the back of that Eurostar train, and that blade of helicopterness come <laughs> against Tom Cruise's neck... <laughs> Did you go, this is going to get four more sequels? But the interesting thing about it as well is that not only did I not think that was going to happen, but they've been parceled out. So, interestingly, I mean, that, the first one was in 1996. Uh, Mission Impossible 5, if they go into production next year, it, it could come out in, uh, in, the, uh, in the summer of death that is rapidly becoming 2015. But if I were them, I'd aim for 2016. Uh, I make it 20 years. Five films spread across 20 years. That's not bad. One thing I will say that's very, very interesting, in addition to Christopher McQuarrie being part of it, I would be very surprised if he didn't tweak the script in his own fashion, of course, but yeah. it's Iron Man 3's Drew Pearce mm -hmm. who is on board to do the script. So mm -hmm. the combination of Drew Pearce and his work on Iron Man 3, which I loved, and then Christopher McQuarrie, this is very interesting indeed, even if you aren't necessarily a fan of Tom Cruise jumping about to buildings. Mm. Oh, I'd love to have a look at uh, Drew Pearce's uh, wall of post-it notes at the moment. I imagine he's just got a list of increasingly tall buildings. Yeah. Just written down. I mean, what, what are they going to do? What's he going to? There's nothing he can do. Now he's climbed the tallest building in the world, Grand Canyon. The Grand, yeah. He could climb the Marianas Trench. That goes down seven miles beneath the surface of the sea. That's amazing. There we go. That's amazing. Okay. Harrison Ford is going to be in Expendables Three. It was announced via the medium of Sly Stallone's Twitter feed, which is extraordinary. I mean, it's almost like Jim Carrey's in terms of that's a lot of capital letters and a lot of exclamation marks. But this is how he announced it. All caps. Willis out. Harrison Ford in. Quadruple exclamation mark. Great news. Quintuple exclamation mark. Back to regular font. Been waiting years for this. No gap. Quadruple exclamation mark. That's the thing. He puts gaps between his words and his exclamation marks. It's really upsetting. I mean, uh, Terry Pratchett famously has a theory of multiple exclamation mar marks that they have a, a relationship to a person's sanity, an inverse relationship. So the more exclamation marks, the less sane. You know, with this many in one tweet, <laughs> I, I, I worry. That's how many exclamation marks now in that tweet? He's got uh, 140 characters. How many of those has he dedicated to exclamation let marks? Let me just get my calculator out. Carry the one. It is 13. 13. That's nearly 10% of his total characters available. Anyway, maybe the news story isn't this. Maybe the news story is that a 71-year-old man, Harrison Ford, is going to be in Expendables 3. So you've got the cast of Expendables. You've got Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Cruz, Randy Couture, Mickey Rourke. you got, you know, Dolph Lundgren. The Stath. The Stath. And then Wesley Snipes, 
maybe Jackie Chan, and then you've got Harrison Ford. Now, one of these things is not like the others. So, Harrison Ford has never been in the movie where he's mowed down an army of henchmen at the very I end. I would maybe suggest that his role isn't going to be like the other roles. Why is he doing this? Maybe he thinks it'll be a laugh. You know, and fair play to him if that's the case. He is a, a jolly chuckle merchant, isn't he? He is a, he is a laugh a minute. And that minute is 12.46 on a Wednesdays. <laughs> you have to be very, very quick. You have to get in there. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's going to be it's going to be a, a barrel of lols. I love Harrison Ford when he's being funny. That moment, uh, that we talked about this a few podcasts ago, where he was on a chat show and um, he said, "Okay, I'll accept questions from the crowd, but they can't have anything to do with Star Wars." And then a guy dressed oh, as Chewie yeah. stood up and asked. He was incredibly funny. I, yeah. I am being very facetious when I say he doesn't have a funny bone, but it's very, very, very dry. And I would say that Expendables, as it, when it comes to humour, is broad in the extreme. Mm. I've already said this on Twitter this week, but uh, <laughs> interviewers' hearts must have soared when they heard Bruce Willis was dropping out of Expendables 3, and then they heard that Harrison Ford was replacing him, and it's all back to square one. But still, there you go. Speaking of Bruce Willis, let's dance this slightly, possibly libelous dance of the follow-up tweet <laughs> that Sly Stallone tweeted. So, let's just remind you of the exclamation mark-filled tweet that announced this momentous news. Willis out, Harrison Ford in, great news, been waiting years for this. Mm-hmm. Follow-up tweet went thusly. Greedy and lazy, a surefire way to ruin a career. He did even CC me in. Mm. That's just rude. You could presume that as referring to Bruce Willis. You could speculate that way. Yes, speculate away. Now, a lot of news sites have reported it as such. And that's of note, because those are mighty big words to say about Bruce Willis. It's such a shame that this happened after he was in the country. Uh, Willis was in the country for Red too because I'm sure during his loquacious interviews for that movie it would have been great to have him actually addressed this head on if you haven't already do check out our video interview with Bruce Willis in honour of Red 2 uh, your favourite Nick DeSamlin uh, interviewed him <laughs> your favourite <laughs> and he had and I still don't understand this he had three he was wearing a shirt three buttons were undone but then on top of that shirt he was wearing a kind of mint green lined bathrobe and his answers, and I actually quite like Bruce Willis when he's being dry because he obviously, he gets a kick out of being difficult. There's no doubt about it. And he was just kind of wallowing in this kind of slightly, if not very, difficult persona that he's enjoying in interviews. For anyone who's unaware, there were a few of these uh, <laughs> the Red 2 junket where Bruce was, uh, at best, I think we say, having fun with the interviewers. Um, at worst being he was being rude I he was he, being rude yes he was being rude he was being very very difficult very uncooperative in, in the interviews but it was difficult to work out and we, we were looking at the footage trying to establish whether or not because he was paired with Mary Louise Parker for this for this junket whether or not this was part of a gag that the two of them were doing where she was in on the joke and he was deliberately winding up the journalist and I say this because just before the interview that we did he walked out of the room and Nick saw this happen and then he walked back in wearing a bathrobe for no apparent reason and unless he's doing it to mess with the people interviewing him, I cannot think why he would have done that. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. I think there's a real element, element of that. He's, he's rich and famous enough now to, you know, to, to be openly eccentric in interviews and, and get yeah. away with it. I quite like, quite like that sort of stuff. I, I, would, I wouldn't have minded uh, 
having a crack at him. Because I think you could have had some fun with him. If it indeed, indeed a joke, and if you could show that you were in on the joke, I think you could have had some fun with him. Fair, fair play to Nick, though. I think Nick soldiered on brilliantly. Uh, and I, I think he definitely took the right tack, which was to uh, to maybe throw some, some out-of-left-field questions to try and uh, catch him off guard. Uh, but it's a good interview. Well worth watching. Hmm. Couple more things. Very, very final things. Born 5 is happening. Uh, you thought that it had ended with Born Legacy. It has not. There will be another sequel. It made $267 million worldwide. Uh, that was uh, Tony Gilroy, who was both writing and directing it. He is now out, Tony Gilroy. We've still got Jeremy Renner as Aaron Cross here, as your medically enhanced super person comes by. Now it's going to be Anthony Peckham, who wrote Invictus and also Sherlock Holmes the First. We'll see how much Universal put behind it. I would hope they'd view this as an opportunity to kind of start again, again, uh, because a lot of people, myself included, found the fact that he was taking his blue pills to get brainier and musclier. It kind of went against everything that was in the Bourne universe. So we've also got In Between Us 2. They promised, they swore blind that there would be no In Between Us 2, but it made a bugger ton of money. So they probably reconsidered. We're looking at worldwide about 60 million, 40 million from the UK. So I can see why they're doing it. It'll be out in autumn 2014. They are shooting later this year. All four of the team are back. So lovely. Do we know what the setup is this time? Because obviously the last time was in between this Nibetha, wasn't it? So it was, and, and that which was an interesting conceit. But I'd be interested to see at this stage, you know, where they are in their lives that they could they could do something fun with this. It's a fun thing to guess about. So uh, it would be nice to see them do a gap here. I'd say. Yeah, I might be too old for that now. When I was in LA in January uh, to interview uh, everyone for Iron Man 3, I interviewed Drew Pierce at his uh, writing cottage that he has a little enclave up in Hollywood, uh, West Hollywood, um, where lots of famous people go to um, to squirrel themselves away to write stuff. And uh, to, to write stuff, so people like Natalie Portman were there, Danny McBride was there, so Danny, uh, Drew Pierce shares a, or shared a cottage with Ian Morris who is one of the co-writers of The Inbetweeners. And uh, at one point, I got a s- little sneaky peek into his office, and he had post-it notes all over the walls. Ian wasn't there, but he had post-it notes all over the walls, uh, laying out the plot of The Inbetweeners 2. Uh, and the only thing I, I stuck in my mind was that there, w- uh, there was a joke involving wanking over Skype. That's, But I won't reveal which character, just in case things have changed. But there you go. You can maybe, maybe expect a Skype wanking gag in Very The Inbetweeners 2. Because they can't go to university because that's basically fresh meat, isn't it? That that ground has already been covered, I think, quite well. Yeah, um, and also uh, at least two of them are, th- are too thick to go to university. So uh, I think... <laughs> the uh, characters, the characters! The characters, not the actors, who are th- I think all but one are Oxbridge educated. So uh, they're not clearly too thick to go to university. But uh, uh, yeah, I can't see that happening. But it'll be, it'll be catching up with them in their early 20s, I guess. Maybe post-university or post-further education. Yes, okay, good. There was a new Thor trailer this week, which is about the only exciting thing left. Now, I know it's obviously not great to talk about a trailer in an audio medium, um, but it is worth seeking out. We also have a trailer breakdown on the website, which goes into some detail and gets the cast and crew to kind of talk us through what's happening on screen. Courtesy of our Dan Jolin. Courtesy of our Dan Jolin, who was on set. So, um, so yeah, that's that was actually, it's a very good trailer and it's a very uh, interesting trailer breakdown. A couple of high points. You will notice that um, Greenwich plays itself... Um, and you will yes. also notice a familiar figure at one point standing nearby Malekith, the bad guy, um, which might give you a bit of a clue to the plot. I won't say it's who, because it's, it? it's a spoiler, Chris. Oh. Yeah. Also, it's not Tony Stark. It's not Tony um, Stark. So, uh, yeah, that, that's well worth a look if you don't mind a couple of clues about the film coming out of it. I'm really intrigued to see how Thor The Dark World does uh, and what the Avengers bump will do to it. 
Yeah, I am too. I actually loved the first one and I'm really, really um, intrigued to see the second. So uh, if the reception that Loki received at Comic-Con is any guide, this will be a $3 billion movie. (laughs) Um, But I'll be honest, it probably isn't. Could it be, Helen? Could it be even better than the season three finale of Babylon 5? Don't be silly, James. Uh, A very quick mention as well, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, who has been playing a succession of very, very respectable roles of late. You know, he's been in, yes, big blockbuster stuff, but it's been stuff like Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, he's been playing Sherlock. He's been playing Julian Assange in The Fifth Estate, which will be at You said Toronto. respectable. Well, you know, roles, respectable okay, roles. Okay. Uh, he, he has now joined The Penguins of Madagascar. That is the spin-off from the Madagascar series. Um, and he will be playing a, a CIA animal, apparently. A CIA animal, okay. Yep. Alongside Tom McGrath, presumably, as the voice of Skipper. <laughs> Indeed so. It all comes full circle. It really does. Anyway, that's enough for the news now. Time for a second interview. Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa, opened on Wednesday, and we dealt expertly with it on last week's show, if I do say so myself. In short, it's bloody funny, does Alan proud, and you should really well go and see it. James is yawning in, in agreement. Uh, he's not a fan of the movie, but don't let that put you off. Um, uh, we spoke to Steve Coogan last week, and to complete the full Alan mother load, we dragged in Partridge co-creator Armando Iannucci, he behind the thick of it, and Feep as well, of course, for a wide-ranging chat. So it's 21 years ago, right? 21? Yeah. Yes. I mean, which, which is, it's, you know, on its own is insane. But he started out as, as a part of an ensemble, yeah. you know, just the sports desk reporter. He started out doing a, the sports you know. desk on a radio show. Yeah. And, and the thing about Alan is he's he's appeared in every manifestation. You know, mm. he, he started out as a, as a sports reporter on the radio, then a chat show host on the radio, a chat show host on the television, mm. then a sitcom character in a sitcom, yeah. and then an online spoof radio DJ in a series of YouTube videos. So he's... Mm kind of done everything and the book he's, as and well. he's had a book because a lot of people ask me you know were you scared of transferring a TV character to film yeah. and, and I've always felt I've never seen him as a TV character I've just seen him as a character who has done you know live stuff and print and you know we, we, we move him around so the idea of doing a film felt like almost like second nature in that you know he hasn't done one and it's about time he, he did but it's interesting because sometimes you treat him as a real character so, yes. so, for example, even in the trailer to Alpha Papa, he's talking about the film. Yes, exactly. As something yes. that exists that he's part of. Yes, well, Steve and, was telling yeah. me the story about when he was at the Norwich premiere, and mm. he was he was Alan, and mm. he was dressed as Alan. Alan, by the way, is a completely fictional character. I ought to make that clear to anyone listening. He doesn't exist. So Steve was dressed as Alan, and he was doing the line of the press as Alan. Mm. And then he said, one interviewer then said... So what do you th- what do you think are the uh, what do you think is the magic of Alan Partridge? Why do you think this character has existed? Oh, and, and Steve didn't know whether to speak as Steve or as Alan. So so he as Alan was saying, "You do know I'm here. You do. Know I'm, <laughs> I'm standing in front of you. I'm not. I, I don't know why you're asking me about in the third person because yeah. I am right here. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But what is it? I mean, the Alan Partridge phenomenon. What do you think is how how come you've managed to put this character into some? Uh, excuse me, but you... <laughs> so there is that strange yeah. kind of dynamic going on. Yeah, he yeah. sort of jumps from one to the other, doesn't he? Yes. It's fictional and, character what, oh, and, and yes, he has been around for 21 years, but we don't, we haven't flogged him to death. You know, we, he only actually appears once every three or four years. Mm. You know, he's, he's like a kind of lunar eclipse. <laughs> Uh, in the you know, <laughs> you, you know he has he has yes. Yeah. So so we've kept him 
sort of tightly controlled, I suppose. Hmm. My question is, do you have a grand plan? Do you do you figure out, do you know no. what, what he's going to be doing? No. Because no. I always wondered, was he going to come back on TV at some point? No, I mean, what happens is we, uh, we do, and then we go off and do our other things. But when we meet up, we're always speculating as to what Alan is up to now. Hmm. So we have this kind of real-time... Uh, biography playing in our heads and, and that has been for the last 21 years so we have a kind of we know the whole story and only 10% of which has mm. made it onto air in one form or another right. but it gives us that context to draw on but we don't it's been there was never you know when when Steve came up with Alan in, in a studio one day and we were all laughing we thought this has potential but none mm. of us thought and we'll still be doing it in 21 years time yeah. And and none of us planned for that. It, it's it's just we always find him funny and and when we've been away from him for a while we think it wouldn't it be funny to to do. It? It's funny when you do when we write as Alan, when we write Alan, we all have to be Alan and obviously Steve is the best at being Alan, which is why <laughs> consistently, you know, he's reconfirmed for the part. Mm. Um, it hasn't gone to... <laughs> you, haven't rebooted it. you haven't rebooted Alan Partridge yet. <laughs> Clooney is Partridge. Um, <laughs> but, but it means that you spend, you know, five days a week for five or six weeks, 10 o'clock to six o'clock, with this voice in the room of Alan. And it, so it does feel you've been in, you've been working with Alan, and you do go home thinking, "I wish that guy would just shut up. He's driving me crazy." I spoke to the Gibbons brothers on set, and they yeah. said that you had a particularly full-blooded uh, Alan impression. That he, he, oh, really? That's kind of Scottish well, it, Alan Partridge. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of Alan Partridge meets Sean Connery, because I, <laughs> I always do a kind of, you know, have, oh god, I'm I'm kind of self-conscious now. But whenever <laughs> I try and do Alan, I'm I sort of do a bit of. Uh, you know a little bit of that but it's it's a bit motson it's a bit sean connery you know <laughs> as i say steve is better yeah, at it i'm so happy to hear yours yeah. though i've, I've been yeah. ever since i spoke to them i've been wondering what it sounded yes. like yes there we go there's a particular mouth shape to alan as well there is, is the there's mouth a sort of into... yes yes <laughs> this is early alan actually yeah uh yes when he, in his commentary days yes yes his voice did change it's which, very, which is very, addressed it's, actually in the in his book, isn't it? It's very Motson-like yes. in the early days, oh. yes. Mm. But then, you know, our voice boxes change over decades and we have actually, it has been decades. Mm. So, you know, yeah. that's that's why that's happened. Yeah. Are there moments where things that Alan have done, uh, lines that he said are yours, uh, recognisably, you know, you go, I'm responsible for that. Oh, bit. Lord, I can't remember. Does it all I bleed into Kiss My other? Face was one of mine. Oh, wow. You know? <laughs> Was, how about Dan? Because Dan gets a lot of that. Dan, in the no, office. that's so funny. That we just—that was just on the day. We just thought it'd be funny for Alan to shout Dan far too many times, and you know, we thought that's funny and put it in. Mm. Didn't realise that you know Dan here has suffered a lot. As Stephen a Mangan will be played for, yes. for the rest of his <laughs> acting career, and every other Dan mm. obviously will be too. Mm. So sorry about that. Read a very, very long in the New Statesman, a very long in the Letters page, a long analysis about British foreign policy in Europe that was in some detail and offering, you know, uh, ways ahead and roadmaps for, uh, you know, some kind of long-term agreement on the budget and so on. And then it, it ended, yours sincerely, Alan Partridge, Hereford. And I just thought, I now cannot take any of that seriously <laughs> because <laughs> it was unfortunately written by an Alan Partridge. What must that guy's life be like? Well, I don't know. Is it... St 
Is he is he still alive? I don't know. I mean, I, I can only apologise to the Alan Partridges out there because you know at the time you want to come up with a normal name. You see, you don't want it to be John Willoughby Skillaby or some obviously comic name. You know, it's got to be normal name. There are Redmond Blackadders. I remember this. Oh, yes, I remember that. I think they actually formed some kind of little you know society. All got the, all the people called Edmund Blackadder. Yeah, and I'm sure there must be a Mister Batman. Yeah. Yeah. Who's, you know, yeah. gets a lot of stick. Well, there's there's a film director called Zal Batman Glidge. Oh, really? Yes. Do people think it's him? It's like, you know how like people put it in the middle of that, you know, uh, oh, yeah. you know George E.R. Clooney. Yeah. You know, yeah. do you think, yeah. is, is, do, uh, do people see it as him trying to pass off that he directed Batman? <laughs> yeah, it could be. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I guess it's a, a tough thing because you've had to put a real story, like a three-act structure almost on on a character who historically has just sort of bumbled around and not done for well yes you say that but actually you know we put a lot of work into the story line of every bit of partridge you know right from knowing me knowing you which looks like a chat show and has played out in real time but actually every episode has to have subliminally yes a story that runs through it ending in the bombshell so you have to start plotting where the different bits of information or incidents happen that will build up to this thing that happens at the end. Mm. Someone once sent me a, a thesis that they'd written for university, a sort of 50-page thesis on how Knowing Me, Knowing You uh, adopted the Aristotelian unities of time, place and action. In the, really? The Someone real... else noticed that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. I know. Oh, cool. So I'm sorry, okay. but you're going to have to put your PhD on hold oh. on this one. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and in Greek tragedy they would have the catharsis yeah. uh, and in our case it was the bombshell mm. and, and when that's pointed out to you you think well I suppose they've got a point but that really wasn't uppermost in our mind in that we have to you know stick rigidly to Aristotle's principles on how drama works you weren't wearing togas in the writing no but, <laughs> but you know we do set ourselves these challenges and in I'm Alan Partridge you, we decided Alan was going to be in every scene so there was no bit of it where we were seeing something that Alan didn't see. So it was almost like we and Alan were the centre of the piece and everything was happening to us and to Alan at the same time. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot... And then in Mid-Morning Matters, which was, you know, little 10-minute pieces, again, there was a sort of a story that we'd Mm. stretched. So actually, the film... It wasn't that unusual to think, okay, how now do we structure a 90-minute story it's this small man with reignited big ambitions uh, or, or on a kind of slightly bigger stage than he's ever been on but still being a small man because i mean it's not like he's never been exposed to extreme circumstances at least we have the kind no, of no i think he i mean he know. did kill a man on live television he, he, there was so. that and he was kidnapped by a stalker at one point he was um, yeah so, so you know he has various traumas to fall back on hmm. in terms of how he might and he has a lifelong interest in the SAS um, yeah. their combat techniques um, <laughs> uh, as I think a newsreader says he, he lists hand to hand combat as one of his interests in his <laughs> Facebook page so he has been through a lot over the yeah. years and, and he's somehow come out I wouldn't say smiling but certainly uh, uh, pole faced uh, as a result but also I think in his latest incarnation he's kind of happy where he is just Mm. presenting sort of Mm. local radio being a kind of local celebrity in a local area rather than any thoughts of national fame a medium sized fish in a small pond a medium sized fish in 
a medium-sized <laughs> fishery. Yeah. Because there are actually lots of fish yeah. there, you know, i.e. Yeah. the other DJs. It's a fish farm, but a small, a local, an organic fish farm. Okay. He is uh, a large sprat in an organic fish farm. <laughs> Okay. Which I think is yeah. what you meant to yeah. say. Yeah, that's sorry, that is. <laughs> yeah. I should write that down. I take it the driving uh, barefoot to Dundee uh, and the Toblerone addiction, that didn't come from any of your actual life experience? or. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I like Toblerone, but I certainly wouldn't eat more than, you know, one and a half packets at once. Uh, and I'm talking about the medium-sized ones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, the, the Edgar Wright uh, Cornetto trilogy, they've got Cornetto on side with them now. Right. <laughs> Have, did you ever hear from I don't think I don't think we ever heard from Toblerone. You never got a, a, any free Toblerone. And, and I did read somewhere that sales of Blue Nun, when Alan ordered a Blue Nun, went up for a week and then plunged massively <laughs> when people made the association. So I don't know whether... I, I can't work out whether Alan liking something is good for it or the kiss of death. For it, as a, I, I, I think Toblerone survived. I still refer to uh, Pringles as a pipe of Pringles. A pipe of Pringles, Pringles. such a perfect yeah. description. <laughs> pipe of Pringles, um, but it's kind of anti-product placement, I guess. Just well, yeah. I mean, we did manage to get for the premiere. We did manage to get eight hundred uh, Terry's chocolate oranges with superficial damage on the box. Amazing. So therefore, there must have been someone's job mm. to get eight hundred boxes of Terry's chocolate orange, and then superficially damaged them. well done that person yes or people might have been an intern mm, be yeah paid i don't yeah. know what a job yeah. yeah what's the reaction in america been like to, to veep as everyone embraced it in the same way that people embraced the pick of it uh yeah i mean it's been very good we're about to do the third series and the second series has been nominated for emmys mm. and things so we're it's still waiting to, to see that i know i, I hey. have no control over hey. its uk i saw the first release. one on a plane did you? Series. All right, yes. yes. It's looking good. Okay. <laughs> it's shaping up well. I think the second series is is, is due to come out in October. Yeah, yeah but, that's what I hear. Uh, you know, um, I feel, sorry, I feel a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of ownership. I mean, you do belong to us. Right. Um, and even though it's made in America I, I for, you know, with Americans. I myself, really. No, sorry, yeah. I think you kind of... <laughs> no, I know. You, <laughs> no, but I'm not, you know, I have no plans to kind of move or anything mm. like that. And, and in fact, Veep is very much a... A UK production, and it's all the all the thick of it writers write for Veep. Hmm. Um, uh, it's yes, it's shot in America, but the cast come over to London to rehearse it, and then I edit it in London. And you know, I've I, I, I'm I'm nearly fifty. I'm certainly Alan now. <laughs> I'm nearly fifty. This is a terrible confession. I'm nearly fifty, and therefore, you know, if if it'd been twenty years ago, hmm. I'd have thought, oh, well, let's give America a go and see. You know, it sounds quite exciting. Let's try it. But I don't feel that. I feel hmm. I just want to make the shows I want to make. Yeah. I'm fascinated by politics. I'm fascinated by American politics. I love HBO. I was a big fan of the Larry Sanders show. It's one of my all-time favorite comedy shows, which HBO hmm. did. So the opportunity to make something for HBO and to make something that I want to make and under the terms that I set to make it uh, is great. But it doesn't mean to say that I'm then going to, you know go on and do a, a, a go to another American network and right. do a 26 part seven year season of something I don't mm. think that way I just I just think project to project really yeah it's interesting the way that, that Veep whilst you know feeling very American you know mm. uh, it still sort of has that structure that we have for British comedy shows you know so it's yeah. it's not 20 odd episodes per no, season no it's 10 it's yeah, 10 exactly. but that's HBO yeah. HBO very much reminds me of working for the BBC about 10 years ago right. where they would approach you and just say right just get on with it you know we trust you get on with it hmm. uh, let us know if we can help you in any way hmm. um, and that's what's 
good about them and that's why they've made all the shows that they've made really because mm. they've tried to distinguish themselves from the other networks where you know there are committees and every meeting you have is is a meeting in front of a whole fan of vice presidents <laughs> of the networks is that a uh, collective now that's a, a collective a fan of vice fan presidents, of vice, presidents. Okay. Um, <laughs> vice president development vice president entertainment vice yeah. president yeah. who are all giving you notes and opinions and so on whereas HBO are, are very small I'm amazed when I went out there just how few of them there are it's a very small group of people right. who are very enthusiastic about television and very skilled at it and j just want to make TV that 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 they're proud of and, and, and that therefore people would be happy to pay a subscription to watch. Is it true that you once snuck into the US State Department using I your did, BBC yes. Pass? My BBC Pass, yes, which was just uh, my photo with the words BBC next to it. <laughs> That's it, you know, a child of four could could print it up, really. And um, and a journalist in Washington said, that's what you do. Go go up, show them, say BBC, and say I'm here for the 12.30. So I did, and I got in. And I thought I'd be escorted around the building with two huge men, but we were just left on our own. And um, I thought, well, I want to take photos of the State Department because we want to build the State Department for In the Loop, which is the film uh, set in the State Department. So I just took my cat phone out and started taking photos. And I think I, this happens in a Jack Reacher novel. Well, <laughs> I, yeah. well I thought... This is highly entertaining and also international espionage. Um, uh, and then a big man did turn up and say, excuse me? And I said, we're here for the 12.30? And he went, oh, it's just down there. And so we went to the 12.30 and it was Condoleezza Rice's press briefing, um, which was very dull. So we managed to get the look of the State Department. And, 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 we're and then this came up when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. I told this story in America and, and this was put to Hillary Clinton at a press briefing and she said well I'm sure that couldn't have happened and they <laughs> reviewed the security and saw that it did happen so they've now completely changed their whole internal security system Wow! At the, so I can't believe you've made it difficult for other people to sneak into the State Department Yes, as a result of my work Hillary Clinton is a, is a lot more secure than she ever was. So no one's allowed in for the twelve thirty. No, yeah. BBC has been banned from the <laughs> So um, I, I assume that would not work with the White House. But have you been to the White House? Is I've that... been round. Yes. Uh, now Barack Obama's uh, chief aide, a guy called Reggie Love, uh, <laughs> is he who, also a soul singer? Well, he sounds like he's a huge. I mean, he was only about twenty four, twenty five, but he was an ex basketball captain right. at sort of yeah. high school and stuff. Like that. And of course, you in the West Wing, you wander around with your surname on a badge. So he wanders around with love written. Kind of, uh, um, he took us round the West Wing, which looks nothing like the West Wing TV show. It's a lot more pokey and small and tiny rooms. But everyone who works in the West Wing, you know, wants to work in the West Wing. So they'll happily sit in a cupboard, really, <laughs> just to say, hey, I'm ringing from the West Wing. Um, but he was funny because he was shown all round and we, you know, we looked in the Oval Office and we, and Reggie has a little tiny, literally the size of a cupboard, his room next to the Oval Office. And he would take us round, but he would say, I oh, know this is the Roosevelt room. This would be where CJ and uh, Josh would meet. So he was referencing the TV show The West Wing, but I'm thinking, but this is this they they don't exist. They, that's a TV show. You are in the actual West. Why don't you say this is the room where 
Barack Obama would meet Vladimir Putin because that's true. <laughs> but yet they want to see themselves as they want to reference the TV version. It's a bizarre mm. set of right. I guess priorities. in a similar way to Norwich and Partridge that that is now everyone's number one reference point for, for the city. Yeah, welcome to Norwich, home of Alan Partridge, brackets, who doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there should yeah. be a statue. Well, there's this. There's a gorilla. There is a gorilla. There's a gorilla. Yeah, I don't know where this gorilla came from, but there's and but there's now an Alan Partridge tour of Norwich Mm. that you can go on. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Do you know where they take you? Uh, I think they take you to the town hall where Alan has always said, you know, Hitler was going to make his victory speech <laughs> from. <laughs> yes. He has that great line: "The more I, the more I learn about Adolf Hitler, the less I like it." <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Okay, time to separate the cinematic meat from the lab-grown cinematic meat. It's reviews time. First up, the movie that's one of the biggest flops of the summer, losing its parent studio Disney an eye-watering amount of money. This week, it's, I might as well just put it on the train and blow it up. Uh, this week, it's producer Jerry Bruckheimer and stars Johnny Depp and Army Hammer came out and denounced critics for being responsible for its failure, which made critics feel all kinds of important for about five minutes. It is, of course... The Lone Ranger, in which Army Hammer plays the masked man with a penchant for silver bullets, and Johnny Depp plays his loyal sidekick... Tonto. But let's not forget the big flop doesn't always necessarily mean dreadful film. So, is that the case? This is indeed the film that critics uh, roundly dropped. It has a Metacritic score, I believe, of 37, which is just woeful. And I genuinely don't understand why. Um, I'm the first to say that when I saw the trailers for this film, I really didn't think it would be very good. But actually watching it, and I saw it yesterday, uh, it is actually very good. Uh, there's lots to like about it. It's very enjoyable. Um, some of the action sequences are fantastic. I mean, it shares a lot of uh, a lot of the DNA of the Pirates films. <laughs> it shares a lot of the DNA of Pirates 1, let's say. There's lots of adventure, the, the, the lots of trains, in fact, an awful lot of trains. Um, I would say the only thing that perhaps does let it down is weirdly Johnny Depp and not for his performance it's just that all of the Native Americans in the film are Native American except for Johnny Depp who's not Native American um, and he puts on that very sort of like forced I'm not going to use the word racist because it isn't in any way shape or form but he puts on a sort of you know I Native American Johnny Depp sort of voice um, and it doesn't quite sit right and he is the comedy relief uh, the comedy relief I should say and he isn't all that funny. He's gently amusing, and he's just the right side of being annoying, I think, through it. Where you're, you're with him all the way through, but you don't want him like you do Jack Sparrow. Army Hammer, on the other hand, is an awful lot of fun. Uh, I think he's very likable throughout. Uh, and Bill Fickner, obviously, as the villain, is, is, is fairly fantastic. Um, and honestly, for people who think it's a terrible film, just for the train sequence at the end, it is a it, you know it deserves three stars just for that sequence, which is all set to the William Tell overture, uh, and it, it's phenomenal. There's two trains, there's tracks, there's people jumping around. It's it's phenomenal. You're, Chris, you're staring at me. I put my hand up because I want to talk next. I see. I, I think Army Hammer could be the real deal. I really do. I think it was fantastic in the Social Network. He's really charming in Mirror Mirror, despite that film's flaws. And uh, I haven't seen this film yet. I'm taking my wife to see it at the weekend. But it's apparently he's apparently very very good. In it. He is. Yeah, very remarkable. I, I would have liked to have seen his Batman uh, in George Miller's Justice League. But having said that, do you think people when uh, the feeling I got from this movie is like right from the off, people were very sceptical about this movie. Uh, they and they kind of went after it with a sort of an attack dog spirit. Um, so I, I think the first wave of critics uh, in the States reviewed Johnny Depp. They were, their, their beef was with him and Jerry Bruckheimer in some way, and not the film, which, from, from what I'm hearing, um, has a level of craftsmanship that is beyond most movies this summer. Mm. 
I mean, I think there are many, many good things about the movie. I think it's wonderfully weird in parts. Uh, look out for the rabbits, for example. I mean, there are really weird touches, the same kind of spirit that Gore Verbinski brought to Rango. He actually, you know, he still has a little bit of that here and you can still kind of feel that coming through, which is really good and really interesting. Um, and, and, you know, many aspects of Depp's performance, again, kind of feed into that weirdness and, and kind of give it a little bit of edge that it wouldn't have if, if it was just the sort of clear-cut, square-jawed hero, which is good. My big problem with it was it's very, very long and everything in this film, and I say everything, not just everyone, everything has an origin story. <laughs> I wonder if we really need an origin story to the mask that the Lone Ranger wears. Or, you know... Or the necklace that his brother wears. Or the, you know, the the watch that Tonto carries. Do we need an origin story for every single item seen on screen? I would argue that perhaps not. And I think this could have been about 40 minutes shorter and it would have been a much better loved film. I'd agree with you absolutely on that. It's definitely too long. And you can't really understand why it's too long because there's a lot of stuff they could have left out. But like I say, I mean, it is a great film and... I really enjoyed watching it, though making it and making it for that budget, it's hard to see how they thought it was going to make money. The character of the Lone Ranger, well, well, he was from the 1930s. Yes. Yeah. So, Lone Ranger, you kind of know in the back of your head who he is, even if you didn't necessarily watch him on TV. He's got a mask on his face, he's what's right and true, and he's got this Native American counterpart called Tonto, and he says Kimosabi. That's kind of the general background bubbling away, static level of interest. But this is the thing, that it's, it's famous you said that westerns don't travel, and I think American TV series that didn't travel probably won't travel as a film either. So it's not a huge shot that this didn't make a huge amount of money, and it's, it's hard to see why they would necessarily blame that on the critics. But it hasn't made money in the US, where westerns do make money. Mm. That's the problem. Um, I think in the rest of the world it's actually going to go over better in a weird way, um, because of the Depp effect. But I think, honestly, what we've seen so far is that British critics have given it um, a much more positive ride, not not just Mm. ourselves but other people as well and I think that's because it does have many strengths and for whatever reason you know America seemed you know very much dead against it but honestly I think many many things about it are so good and it's also spectacular looking I mean seeing this on the big screen those wide shots of the Grand Canyon of Monument Valley I mean you know don't get into the geography of the film which makes no (laughs) sense but it looks absolutely gorgeous on screen and you know there's something to be said for that I think it's interesting you mentioned the weirdness because that is a thread that runs all the way through the film now I don't think it's a spoiler to say I I asked Ian Nathan about the weirdness since he was on set of the film Uh, and he said because there are essentially cannibalistic rabbits in this with sort of fangs which and you just can't work out why Uh, Johnny Depp's character Tonto does say repeatedly that nature's out of balance so I think that's the the through line but uh, the original script of the film had uh, Bill Fickner's uh, villain as a werewolf and the idea was that it's all about the advancement of the railroad and the sort of despoilment of, of, of mother nature and it's thrown nature out of balance and therefore the cowboys have become werewolves so I think those are the last vestiges of that and when that was told to me kind of it made a lot more sense because during the film I genuinely wondered if I'd missed something why are there cannibalistic rabbits running around biting things it's just, it was odd yeah I think it would have made sense I, I, I'd have liked to have seen them I know the, uh, the original script apparently was I mean this is a big movie that costs a lot of money but mm. apparently the original script would have cost a lot of money um, but the werewolves thing I mean, the thing people forget I think about the first pirates movie is essentially they're fighting zombie pirates mm. and they that are. just almost comes out of nowhere and, but it really works and I would have quite liked to have seen Bill Fickner as a a cowboy werewolf or after all why does Lone Ranger fire silver bullets if not to kill werewolves and also if they can do werewolves on a twilight budget surely they could have done werewolves on a Disney budget I know they weren't good werewolves I'm not saying that the effects <laughs> were brilliant but you know they were serviceable yeah. and 
I'm, I'm sure they could have managed it. Anyway, but having said that, I wouldn't have lost the train sequence at the end for anything because that's terrific. And no, maybe if they'd had werewolves, they would have had to do something else. So, hey. But let's, let, to summarise, it is a good film. We gave it four stars. Yes, we did. Uh, I think, you know, it's, is it as good as Pirates 1? No. Is it better than Pirates 2, 3 and 4? Yes. I would say Pirates 2 gets a lot of undeserved flack. It's, it's a very, very good film for about two thirds of that movie. But yes, I, I haven't seen, like I say, I haven't seen Lone Ranger yet. But um, we gave it four stars. We stood apart from the crowd initially, but it's been interesting in Washington to see uh, the second wave of critics, uh, mostly in this country, uh, as, we, as we've caught up with it because it's been released about a month behind the states. Yeah, and uh, I think we've come with with virtually no baggage, and it's uh, it's interesting because a lot there's a lot of love for it in the UK. Okay, moving on. Uh, because you displayed virtually no interest whatsoever, Percy Jackson, Sea of Monsters, the sequel to Percy Jackson and the Lightning Seeds, opened on Wednesday. Uh, so, what's this one like, Len Helen? Um, I quite enjoyed this. I think um, it's uh, it's basically a very much a film aimed at kids. And I would say that straight up. I mean, the books are, like the Harry Potter books, very, very mindlessly readable um, and uh, but perhaps don't have quite Potter's kind of element of surprise about them um, but yeah I think they're uh, they're they're pretty good stories for, uh, for for sort of adventure movies to be based on so basically this time they they kind of hand wave at the entire plot of the first film in a sort of 30 second voiceover during the credits which is pretty impressive uh, storytelling uh, so the idea is that Logan Lerman's Percy Jackson here he is a demigod he is the son of Poseidon and in the world where we live, obviously, you know, demigods aren't publicly acknowledged, but they live uh, in and train in safety in a place called Camp Half-Blood, which is where he spends much of his time. But the problem is Camp Half-Blood's defences are beginning to fray, leaving them all vulnerable to attacks no! from monsters. I know. So he has to go on a quest for the Golden Fleece to try and save the camp, basically, at the request of Anthony Head's Chiron and uh, Stanley Tucci as uh, Dionysus or Mr. D as he's known so you know good supporting cast Nathan Fillion's in there as well as Hermes uh, the messenger god the first the first movie uh, directed by Chris Columbus had a really interesting supporting cast it had Uma Thurman mm. Pierce Brosnan yeah. uh, Rosario Dawson uh, Sean, Bean, Sean Bean Kevin McKidd good people who actually cost a bit of money so yeah. um, I'm getting the sense from this one that apart from maybe the, 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 the main three who were bound by contractual demand <laughs> that they've gone for interesting and cheaper I think that's true. I think the, f- the first film made money, but it didn't make, you know, Potter money, which I think was probably what they were hoping for. So they've gone a little bit um, cheaper with the actors, but they haven't, in fairness to them, you know, skimped on the effects, which are still very, very big and very impressive. The director is Tor Friedenthal. I, th- I feel like this is really going to hit its target audience. So the readers of the books are sort of mostly boys, not necessarily from about 8 to 12. And I think they're going to love this. Um, our reviewer gave it two. I, I quite enjoyed it, but I can see that it's, you know, it's while it's pacey, it's perhaps not exactly deep. Oh, right. But, uh, but honestly, uh, decent effects, oh, yeah, zippy kind of pl- storytelling, and, uh, and the three young ladies are pretty good. A uh, couple of other big films are coming out very, very soon. Grown Ups 2, the sequel to the Adam Sandler classic that opened a couple of years ago. Uh, that is out on Friday. It hasn't screened for critics in this country as of yet, so we can't bring you a review at the time of recording the podcast, although we will have one up on the website by the time you are listening to this. As you know, it stars Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, David Spade, Kevin James, uh, Taylor Lautner's in this one. No Rob Schneider, though, so they've, they've taken away their biggest comedy weapon. And I'm really worried about that one because the first one was so good. So yeah. good. And I just, oh, how are they going to recapture the magic? Oh, so, oh Chris, how? So tough, Gosh. so tough. The other big film uh, that opens next week is on Wednesday. It's Kick-Ass 2. Uh, we have seen it. Unfortunately, we're embargoed 
until the 12th. The review will be up on the website then, and we will discuss it on next week's show, along with an interview with the director, Mr. Jeff Wadlow. Oh, and also on next week's show, we're going to have the legendary Mr. John Cleese. Very, very excited about that one. So uh, that's going to be fun. Hopefully it'll be a proper interview. He won't just be listing types of cheese. Uh, that is it, though, for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more formulated fun, where we'll be joined by the people I've just mentioned. Uh, until then, it is fairly well from James. Bye. Ali. Bye-bye. Helen. Fairly well. And farewell from me. I'm off to glue myself to a horse in anticipation of replacing Anthony Stewart Head in Percy Jackson 3, cost-cutter version. See you next week. <laughs>